I want to very briefly review with you what we covered this morning. Maybe I just field a question real quickly. How many of you were able to be there at our noon meeting today? Was that the majority? Or let's flip it around. How many were not able to be there? Ah, you are the people. Okay, no. Um, <laughs> I want to briefly read you to kind of catch you up to speed. What we're looking at, is, as we saw in the, in the theme there, is by all means, but with a question mark. Because Paul makes that statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he talks about how he's become all things to all people so that by all means he may save some. His goal is to go as far as he can and do the best that he can to reach as many as he can with the hope of saving some. And we saw that in our first message, Cutting Timothy, that he basically challenged Timothy with that mindset. You know, he had the document in hand that said, Gentile converts do not have to be circumcised. So what do we want you to do? Get circumcised. Why? Well, it wasn't for his salvation, but it was for the salvation of other people. And the challenge that we left off with this morning, what is it you have in your life? Is there anything in your life that you realize, yes, I can stop right here, but maybe I could or perhaps even should do more for the cause of Christ? Is there something that might even require some personal, even painful sacrifice that's not required for my salvation, but might be the key to someone else's salvation? That God wants to use me to do more than I necessarily have to. That's what we looked at this morning. And so now we're going to pick it up. We saw also, by the way, that the Apostle Paul, as soon as he started working for the Gentiles or working on the right side of the Lord at all, that he was constantly hounded by Judaizers, those who were trying to uh, change his methodology, change his ministry, change even his message, instead of being one of solely faith in Christ, but they needed to become Jewish first in the ceremonial sense, and going through the rites and customs of Judaism. And that haunted him every step of the way. Literally, you go through and you see in Acts chapter, I mean, 12, 13, 14, and we're going to see even on that everywhere Paul goes, there's this like cadre of pious Jewish people who are hunting him down, literally, some even to the point of murderous plots to try to stop his ministry. Yet he continues going. And in Acts chapter 15, a decided victory was won for the right and it was, re, it was uh, decided by the council in Jerusalem that nowhere in the Christian church could anyone mandate circumcision. And he had this letter of victory in hand. But when he came to Timothy, he said, I know we're going to go give this letter to the world, but I need you to be circumcised first. Are you willing to do more than you have to? And tonight, now we're just going to pick up exactly where we left off and launch from that point where Paul and Timothy are together and to go forward and we're going to dig a little bit deeper. Tonight's is going to be a little bit um, the same method. We're just going to look at the Bible uh, and the spirit of prophecy and see what we have there in the story of Paul. But we're going to dig deeper into Paul's mindset, his method of reaching the lost. And we're going to see, when I first understood what I'm going to share with you tonight, it was very eye-opening for me. And the title of our message this evening is First and Second Barcelonians, which just in case you don't realize, those are not books of the Bible. Okay, don't flip through your index madly like I don't remember it. You know, these are books that don't exist. And with that, I want us to bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we'll be off into a study of God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here in 
Lomeland, it's night. And thank you for being a God who communicates your will to us. Obviously, you're sovereign. You could do whatever you'd like, but you not only created us, but you communicated with us. And you gave us this word to study. So, Lord, help us to study in the Spirit tonight, claiming the promise that if we lack knowledge, that you will give it to us and that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. So, Lord, we claim that promise tonight. So teach us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First and second, Barcelonians. So going back to Paul's pragmatism, I, this, this is, I just want us to walk through this again. At the conclusion of our last message, we noted that must someone be circumcised to be saved, according to what the church came to an agreement on in Acts chapter 15. Must they be circumcised to be saved? No. Very easy. Now, could someone be circumcised if they so chose? Yes. So here's the real question. Should someone be circumcised? Well, it depends on the situation. So how did Paul interact with those kind of situations? How did he make the decisions that he did? Let's take a look at a couple of other examples, besides circumcision, of, of Paul's mindset and methodology for exercising his rights, but then limiting those rights for the sake of others. Let's take about this concept of being paid for the gospel ministry. There were a lot of places. You know that Paul had a side job, right? He was a what? A tent maker. And he would literally go set up shop and fund his own ministry. He was a self-supporting worker. And apparently he did well enough at that. He could continue on. But at some point he said, you know, I could be doing more if I didn't have to be building tents all the time. And, you know, it would be, seem right that I get paid. In fact, this is what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is his line of reasoning. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this, what's that word? Right over you. He's like, I have the right to demand this. Are we not even more? But then he says, nevertheless, we have not used this right. But endure all things for what reason? lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul would have every right to go into a town and say, I demand payment for what I'm doing. But he said, because you might not receive that well, you're not prepared for that, and it might slow down the work of the gospel, I'm going to sacrifice myself. Okay? Let's look at another example. Oh, there was one more. Where was it? We saw the circumcision one already. Paul wanted to have Timothy go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because, not because it was necessary for salvation, but because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Can you imagine what it would be like if you had this uncircumcised man working with Paul, and the strike against Paul is he's too open to Gentiles and pagans and heathens, and he's going to water down the faith. And here he's got this uncircumcised kid running around with him. Everywhere he'd go, he'd have to explain, oh, the thing is, I don't have to, I've got the letter, blah, blah, blah. He's like, just, it's just easier and better. Just, let's just cut Timothy. And he did. There was, um, you would think that after the Jerusalem Council, however, that now with that letter in hand, signed by James, the first president of the church there, and 
Peter and all the other leading brothers in Jerusalem, that that would have been enough to at least get all these Judaizers to leave them alone. But what you see going forward after Acts chapter 15 is they keep hounding Paul everywhere he goes. Let's take a look at a few examples. Some of these are longer passages, and I assume at the night meeting we have more Bibles available, so I hope that's the case. But in John, I mean Acts chapter 7 here, 17, apologize, notice what happens. Of course, the cutting of Timothy happened in Acts chapter 16, and here's Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 1. Notice what you find. Now then, now when they had passed through and Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Verse 5, But the Jews who were not persuaded... Becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. But he's facing harassment. Literally, the places where he's staying are getting ransacked and dragged before rulers for this message. It happens in the very next chapter. We're not going to read all of that, but you see that the Jews oppose Paul's preaching in Corinth. Next place, the Jews plotted against him in Greece. It's in Acts chapter 20. So everywhere he's going through the rest of the book of Acts, there's always this cadre of pious, at least superficially pious, Jewish brethren who hunt him for his message and his method. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, what happened was, during this time, after the Jerusalem council, remember his plan was to go around and tell all the Gentile places about the good news of the you know, general council vote, if you will. And so he's going around with Timothy, but everywhere he goes on his heels are these people yapping and yapping and being pers- uh, persecuting, in fact. But notice that he has a travel plan in mind. I want to bring this out. Notice what he says in Acts chapter 19. This is, Acts chapter 19, of course, is right in the midst of all that tribulation and persecution we were just seeing him go through. It says in Acts chapter 19, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to where? Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Okay? So he's taking this tour of Gentile places, But now he's setting up his travel plans. He's my next step after this tour is to go back to Jerusalem, back to where he was sent from in Acts chapter 15. He's going to go back there now. And then from Jerusalem, he's going to head to where? Rome. He's setting up the dominoes for his eventual travel. Now, fascinatingly, as he's in Corinth, one of the places that he was persecuted, we just saw on the previous slide, 
It's, that's most likely the location from whence he wrote the book of Romans. The book of Romans was not written after his visit, but before his visit to Rome in preparation for his plan to see them. Okay? And you can see here in Acts chapter 19 his thinking. I'm going to go through these Gentile cities, head back to Jerusalem. Then it's the big tour, then to Rome, and eventually from Rome, let's see what he has to say in Romans 15 as he's preparing to go to Rome. And again, this is most likely written from Corinth. But he says, but now no longer having a place in these parts, again, the persecution, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, and he's writing to those in Rome, whenever I journey to where? Spain. I shall come to you. So his plan is not just to go through the Gentile cities and head back to Jerusalem, but from Jerusalem to go to Rome and from Rome to head on the big trip to Spain. Now, most of Paul's work was confined to that region right around the Mediterranean there. And yes, I guess it went into Europe in the sense that it went to Rome and Italy, what we now think of Italy, right? But his aim was to go further up into the mainland of Europe. And he was going to plant the gospel standard way up there in Spain. He has big plans. Okay. For I hope to see you, still talking to the Romans, I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while. So he says, I'm going to stay there, work with you, and maybe you guys can help me get to my final stage, which is Spain. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. So he's like, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I want to come to you in Rome, and then you can send me to Spain. Are we still clear on his trajectory? Okay. Therefore, when I perform this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Paul has a very deliberate, long thought out plan to take a missionary journey that would go up into mainland Europe and go into Spain. That's his plan. But this is the last time you ever see Spain mentioned in the gospel record. He never got to Spain. So what happened? Tonight's message is going to be looking at what happened. Why didn't Paul get to Spain? He didn't die of premature cardiac arrest. You know, he didn't, he didn't lose the faith. He didn't apostatize. He didn't do anything like that. So why didn't he make it to his destination? Let's study it out. Interestingly enough, as he's going to Jerusalem, to finishing up his tour of these Gentile churches with the good news and whatnot, he begins getting warnings not to go to Jerusalem. Okay? Acts chapter 21. We've got a little bit more time. We can look this one up. This, the, the meat of it is here, but Acts chapter 21 in my Bible, the little, the little heading even says there, warnings on the journey to Jerusalem. He's being warned not to go. And it mentions all kinds of cities and destinations and places they stopped at. And we can just, for instance, just start with verse 1 there in Acts chapter 21. Now it came to pass that when they had departed from there and set sail, running a, course, a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. 
Now watch this. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now if you're keeping track, the apostles' plans were made, according to Scripture, in the Spirit. Now I don't know if that means the specific plan of Spain, or if that included the stop through Jerusalem. But he determines to go to Rome and to Spain in the Spirit. But now the Spirit is saying, don't go to Jerusalem. It's not saying don't go to Rome, and it's not saying don't go to Spain, but just Jerusalem, don't go there. Don't do it. So he stays there a week with these people, and they're like, I really believe the Lord is saying, don't do this. But watch what happens. Verse 5, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children until we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So he's like, oh, thank you, but we're going to keep going. And he goes on. Still in the same chapter. Let's just keep reading. Verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. And the next day we were... Uh, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now look at verse 9. Now this man had four virgin daughters who did what? Prophesied. Now the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly what their prophecy said. It just says they prophesied. That's weird. But we do know that just before that, in the last place he was, through the Spirit, they were saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Then it mentions these four daughters prophesied. Now look at the very next verse, verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet, here's another prophet, named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He acts out a little parable. The prophet comes down, takes off the belt, and binds his hands and says, this is what's going to happen to whoever owns this belt. Paul. If you go to Jerusalem, Paul. It's being very explicit, not just a vague, please don't go. They're going to tie you up and hand you over to the Gentiles if you go to Jerusalem, Paul. And he invokes the name of the Holy, the Holy Spirit. If I'm a prophet, speaking from behalf of the Holy Spirit, don't go. Verse 12. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the right motive, is it not? It's the right sentiment. Verse 14, So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. I want you to keep that phrase, the will of the Lord be done, in mind. It comes back a little bit later. 
But this is what Paul was going through, and he, he determined to continue on. In fact, oops, I was going the other one. That's the wrong text there. No, it's, it's correct. I'm sorry. 15. Let's start with the verse 15 of Acts chapter 21. So why don't I like PowerPoint? We've got Bibles. Let's just look at them. <laughs> Acts chapter 21. The very next verse, he makes it to Jerusalem. And what had been the prophet's warning? All oh, the brethren are going to bind you and tie you up and hand you over to Gentiles if you go to Jerusalem. So I'm guessing he's coming into the meeting with the brethren kind of like, but he's going anyway. Verse 15, And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain uh, nascent of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us, how? Gladly. How do you think Paul felt then? See, I was right. It's going to be fine. No big deal. They're just paranoid. They're nervous. They know I've been hunted by Judaizers all this way, but I know that the Lord's going to take care of me. I'm going to go ahead and take this trip right into the heart of Jerusalem. I'm going to visit with the brethren. Surely they'll be happy to see me again. It's a little Joseph and his brothers-esque, right? Verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in, to, uh, went in with us to whom? James. Now, if you recall from an earlier meeting, James is basically the president of the church at this time, right? He's the one who made the decree to say, this is what we have decided. And it was in his name that the letter went forward, that you don't have to be circumcised. So he was the key leader in Acts chapter 15. But here in Acts chapter 21, it's James and all the elders were present. Okay? This is basically the same group of people who had been put together in Acts chapter 15, who sent him on his journey. Now they're receiving him back from his journey, and he's going to give a report. Mrs. White has this to say. Sketches from the life of Paul, page 209. It was before the same audience at the Apostolic Council years before that he, that is Paul, related his experience and his conversion and the great work which God had wrought through him among the Gentiles. The Spirit of the Lord then, speaking of that time in Acts 15, then witnessed to the word spoken, and under its influence the council did what? Yielded their prejudices and expressed themselves as in harmony with the position of the apostle. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 15, there was the big fight, and they were against Paul, but the Holy Spirit won, hearts were melted, minds were sharpened, and they came to a harmonious agreement. But this now is several years later. So let me just pause right here and ask you a question. Is it possible for someone to have a conviction and a conversion experience and it be different a few years later? Absolutely. I think we see an example of that here. Watch. And send an address to the churches to that effect. But the same battle was again to be fought. The same prejudice is once more to be met. Paul goes into Jerusalem saying, no, 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 we've got all our differences worked out. Remember Acts 15? Well, it wasn't Acts 15 at that point, but you know, 
the Jerusalem Council, we came to this decision, it was a beautiful, teary, Holy Spirit thing, everyone was converted, we were on the same page, it was, it was a symphony of harmonies and melodies, it was beautiful. And now I'm going to come back and report that the good news of how the work has gone forward with that, with that action, surely they'll be happy to see me. It's going to be fine. And he comes in there and they receive him. Oh, Paul, good to see you, buddy. Come on in. And he starts telling them, you should have seen it at this place. You should have seen it at that place. But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is still at work. There's a work going forward. The gospel is spreading through the Gentiles. And they're like, good, good, so good to hear about that. But, afterward, watch this now. This is speaking of after Acts chapter 15. Afterward, when it became apparent that the converts among the Gentiles were increasing rapidly, there were a few of the leading brethren at Jerusalem who began to cherish anew their former prejudices against the methods of Paul and his associates. Now, if you remember, who were those leaders back there? Those were the apostles, the leading people of the church. <coughs> These prejudices did what? Strengthened with the passing of years until some of the leaders determined that the work of preaching the gospel must henceforth be conducted in accordance with their own ideas. If Paul would conform his methods to certain policies which they advocated, they would acknowledge and sustain his work. Otherwise, they could no longer look upon it with favor or grant it their support. So while Paul was out working with the converts in the Gentile world, some of the leaders who had been in the room at the Jerusalem Council and signed that letter started to change their minds. And their hearts started to harden again. The old prejudices reared their heads and they started to build up animosity against Paul. And Paul comes back, hey, I'm back, it was great. And they're like, good, good, good. But their hearts haven't stayed converted. And watch what happens. They make a proposal. Right there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 21, it's on the screen, but it's just as nice to see it in the paper. And when they heard it, that is the report amongst the Gentiles, what did they do? They glorified the hooray for what he's doing for the Gentiles, they all said. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, that does not mean they're talking about the Ten Commandment law. They just love honoring their mother and father. They're talking about the ceremonial law, the customs, the rites of Judaism. He's like, yeah, we've got a lot of believers that believe here too, but you know, they're still, you know, big fans of that ceremonial law. And, but you never believe what they've heard about you. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. 
It's like, I mean, that might be good for out in the Gentile world, but you're down here in Jerusalem on a high holy day. There's a lot of Jews here, and even the converts are still big fans of ceremonial laws. They're going to hear that you're here, and it's going to be a problem. What are we going to do? I would imagine Paul is like, well, you could have told him it's not true. <laughs> Maybe he could have stuck up for me. It would have been a help. He doesn't believe that Moses is bad. They should forsake all the teaching. But those ceremonial rites of customs of circumcision. And he's like, plus it's not just me. We all signed the letter. Well, they had a plan in mind. Therefore, do what we tell you. So they said, here's the problem. We've got a lot of converts who are still big fans of the ceremonial law, and you, for whatever reason, are a lightning rod on this issue. But don't worry, we've got a plan to fix it. Here's what we want you to do. You see, we have four men who have taken a vow. This is a ceremonial rite and custom, right? We want you to take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Do you see what's happening here? They're like, yeah, yeah what you're doing is great for the Gentile world, but you're in Jerusalem now. And there's a rumor going around about you that you're not really Jewish anymore. And we got a problem, Paul. But don't worry, here's our solution. What we want you to do is go right downtown Jerusalem, right in the Temple Square. And we want you to go through this right with these four men. And we want you to pay for them too, so that if anybody asks, they're like, oh, oh, Paul is still super Jewish. He'll put out the fires with the Judaizers. We think it's a good idea. But then they add, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Notice what they've done here. They've said that decision was good for the Gentiles, but we need a second tier of salvation for the Jews. So, Paul is a pragmatist. He wants to go as far as he can to win as many as possible. So should he take the deal? If we were in small groups now, we would discuss it amongst ourselves. But think about it for a minute. Is this a good deal? Is this a good way to win people to the gospel? Basically, these leading men proposed a solution to the resistance Paul continually encountered from Jews. We want you to fund and participate in the purification ceremonies of four local Jewish men. 
which would involve seven days of rites and ceremonies performed in the temple during one of Jerusalem's most densely populated seasons of their Jewish year. Now, Paul attended feasts, but he also taught that feast keeping was nothing anymore. Colossians 2.16. And of course you recall that Paul circumcised Timothy, but it wasn't to demonstrate that this is what you must do to be saved. It was just to move the work along. Let's get going, right? So likely, in Paul's mind, this new proposal seemed pragmatic enough to tip the scales in Paul's mind toward acquiescing. But here's the problem with this plan. You see, any time he adapted his method of work, it was to reach the target audience by not letting unnecessarily unnecessary cultural considerations cloud his message. He was trying to present the message as efficiently and effectively and clearly as possible. This proposal, however, now offered by the leading apostles and elders, was not merely for the furtherance of the gospel, but would result in confusing people as to Paul's true gospel position. Their request basically challenged Paul, if you're a Jew, then do this uniquely Jewish thing in the most prominent Jewish place in front of all the Jews that are in the world, basically. I can't help but notice the striking similarity to Satan's conversation to Jesus in the wilderness of temptation. If you are the Son of God, demonstrate it. Well, what happens? Again, commenting, Sketches in the Life of Paul 2.12. The brethren hoped by this act Paul might give a decisive contradiction of the false reports concerning him. But while James assured Paul that the decision of the former council, again, that's from Acts 15, concerning the Gentile converts and the ceremonial law still held good, the advice given was not consistent with that decision, which had also been sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. It was a violation of what they had decided earlier. The Spirit of God did not prompt this advice. It was the fruit of what? Cowardice. It was a cowardly thing they were asking Paul to do. Instead of stand up and say the truth, they're like, why don't you this time really blend in so nobody can really tell? I'll tell you, friends, sometimes in our presentation of the three angels' messages, I fear that we're tempted to bend so far to the target audience that nobody even knows what we're saying anymore. And Paul was confronted with that. He wants to go as far as he can, by all means, save some. But was this a righteous idea? Because here's what was behind it. The disciples themselves yet cherished a regard for the ceremonial law and were too willing to make concessions, hoping by so doing to gain the confidence of their countrymen, remove their prejudice, and win them to the faith in Christ of the world's Redeemer. Paul felt that if he could by any lawful concession on his part win them to the truth, he would remove a very great obstacle to the success of the gospel in other places. But he was not authorized of God to concede so much as they had asked. This concession was not in harmony with his teachings, nor with the firm integrity of his character. 
he knew that this was a step too far. Now, I can't climb inside of his mind. I'm not saying that he was a bad guy at all. But there's a reason the Holy Spirit kept saying, don't even go to Jerusalem. Just don't go. Why don't you just, you know, head to Rome? (laughs) You've already written the letter. Go to Rome. And when you get to Rome, from there you can go to Spain. But he says, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and win my brethren. I'm going to win the people from... Don't do it, Paul. When we consider Paul's great desire to be in harmony with his brethren, his tenderness of spirit toward the weak in faith, his reverence for the apostles who had been with Christ. Think about who are the people proposing this. This is like Peter, James, and John. These are the apostles who've been with Jesus. And for James, the brother of the Lord, and his purpose to become all things to all men as far as he could do this and not sacrifice principle, when we consider all this, it is less surprising that he was constrained to deviate from his firm, decided course of action. Basically, she's saying, I don't think he should have done it, but we can understand where his head was. But here's what happened. Instead of accomplishing the desired object, these efforts for conciliation only precipitated the crisis, hastened the predicted sufferings of Paul, separated him from his brother and in his labors, deprived the church of one of its strongest pillars, and brought sorrow to Christian hearts in every land. Let's go back to Scripture now. Still in Acts chapter 21. Look at verse 26, what happened? Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. That's a very heavy phrase, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So they weren't just trying to arrest him, they were trying to kill him. And the only thing that broke him up were the Roman centurions. Which, by the way, through the rest of the book of Acts, his Roman captors 
are some of his best defenders. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked him, notice he commanded him to be what? Bound. Remember what was the prophecy? This is what they're going to do. The Jews are going to bind you and give you to the Gentiles. And here's the fulfillment of the prophecy. And he asked whom he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when they could not ascertain the truth behind of the tum- because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by soldiers, by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him. From this point on in Paul's life, there was virtually no time that he was not under some form of arrest. Either chained to guards or under house arrest or in some prison cell and being called up. And sure, he has some splendid opportunities to speak to leaders. You think of Felix and, you know, you think of these different, uh, even up to the household of Nero. And the Lord brought some good out of his situation. He was able to write some pastoral letters to churches that we have in the scriptures now. That's good. Good came out of this. But it was not the ideal that Paul had in mind. And I think we're going to see that it was not the ideal that the Lord had in mind for Paul. You see, instead of pacifying the Jews, this action only Uh, placed him directly in harm's way. Paul was arrested and spent the next few years in almost continual captivity, finally culminating with his death. By the way, where? In Rome. He finally made it to Rome as a prisoner. And he was allowed visitors, and it was nice, but it wasn't nearly what it could have been if he had still held firm to principle. But then I asked this question. Why didn't the Lord perform a miracle for Paul like he had with Peter? Remember, Peter was arrested. James had been beheaded. Peter gets arrested earlier in the book of Acts, and he's the next day going to be executed. But the Lord sends an angel and and rescues him and frees him from those bonds and opens the doors, and he brings them back to the brethren who were praying for him. And right there, my friends, is the key. What were the brethren doing while Peter was in jail? Praying. Praying for him. What were the brethren doing while Paul was in jail? It's too bad, man. Well, he probably put himself in this position. He was running around all those Gentiles and stuff and whatever, but anyway. Because the brethren didn't rally to his aid and commit themselves to prayer for Paul like they had for Peter. Now you can say that's a step off the ledge. How do you believe that's true? Well, watch this. Had the leaders in the church fully surrendered their feelings of bitterness towards the apostle and accepted him as one specially called of God to bear the gospel to the Gentiles, the Lord would have spared him to them to still labor for the salvation of souls. Wrap your minds around that for a second. The Lord would have spared him to them to still labor for the salvation of souls if They had surrendered those feelings, held fast their faith, truly been converted and prayed for Paul, rallied to his side, stood up beside him. The Lord would have intervened. Watch this. He who sees the end from the beginning and who understands the hearts of all 
saw what would be the result of the envy and jealousy cherished toward Paul. God had not in his providence ordained that Paul's labor should so soon end. But he did not work a miracle to counteract the train of circumstances to which their own course gave rise. When I read that statement for the first time, when I heard that message, and I thought, you mean there was more Paul could have done? There was more Paul could have done. There was more God wanted Paul to do. It was not God's plan for him to die in Rome. And we already know where he was headed. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that the Bible is lacking because we don't have first and second Barcelonians. Right? The scripture is fully sufficient to give us wisdom for salvation. It's got all the, you know, to fully equip every man for every good work. I'm fine with that. The Lord knows what he needed. And... But have you ever, I mean, stop and think for just a few minutes. What do you think world history would have looked like if the Apostle Paul unbridled, had gone into mainland Europe and planted the gospel flag in Spain. What might have been next? And it all roots in this one decision to compromise where he should have stood firm. It's a fascinating thought. Which brings us to this point. The same spirit is still leading to the same results. And neglect to appreciate and improve the provisions of divine grace has deprived the church of many a blessing. Watch this one. How often would the Lord have prolonged the life of some faithful minister had his labors been appreciated? That's heavy. Are there pastors, evangelists, leaders, missionaries somewhere that could do more, not if they try it harder, but we were bound with them in prayer and concern and sustaining their work, that the Lord would prolong their life and ministry to do more? How often would the Lord have prolonged the life of some faithful minister had his labors been appreciated? But if the church permit the enemy of souls to pervert their understanding so that they misrepresent and misinterpret the words and acts of the servant of Christ, if they allow themselves to stand in his way and hinder his usefulness, the Lord removes from them the blessing which he gave. Let me close with this idea. A couple of concluding thoughts. This is why I'm taking away. I'm sure there are other ideas that we can learn from this, but two ideas that I want to leave you with tonight. First of all, never conform to the culture you're trying to reach to the point that the message you're called to bear is distorted. Does that make sense? Yes, you should reach out. Yes, you should be with the people. Yes, you should be in the world, but you should not be of the world to the point that people don't know what you're there for. You, I assume, <laughs> are a Seventh-day Adventist, called to be God's representative in these last days. 
we should live like it. Now I want to be clear, that's not a call to fanaticism and extremism and craziness. It's a call to consistency and clarity and purpose. You should be kind in your demeanor and clear in your convictions. Somehow we need to be unique without being obnoxious. All the people said amen. (laughs) Right? The Lord hasn't called us to crazy, but he has called us to clarity. Do you get that? We should be in the world, but not of the world. Paul was trying to reach that culture, but he went so far in adapting to their practices that he misrepresented the message he was given to bear. And it was not what God intended. So first of all, don't go too far. Stay the distinct person God has called you to be with this message for this time. Point number one. Point number two. Always hold up in prayer those through whom God is working. Pray for your leaders. I cannot emphasize this enough. And especially being a pastor now, (laughs) please, the last thing you need is to come home, or to, to, is for the church members, instead of supporting you with prayer, to be barking at you, nipping at you, picking this apart, and picking that apart, blah, 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 blah. Don't do that. Pray for them. Lift them up. Literally have concern for them, even if you have disagreements with them, especially if you have disagreements with them. Pray for them even more. And the Lord may have to remove them, the Lord may have to change them, the Lord may have to fix them, that's, that's fine. And there might be a time and place to say the right thing at the right time, but your job is not just to harp on them, to leave them alone and say, well, good luck, brother. No. Even if you don't understand why they're doing or even disagree with the way they're doing it, pray for your struggling co-laborers in the three angels' messages. Satan desires nothing more than to see God's church splinter and divide. Don't let it happen. So this is what I leave with. First of all, imagine what God could have done through Paul in Spain. Think about that. And then think about this. Imagine what God wants to do through us today. Is there something that God would like to do through us that either through our lack of personal clarity and conviction in our own calling or our lack of support of those who are doing the work, there's something being undone that could be done that God wants done, but we're hindering it. So that's my appeal tonight. It's to just imagine what God could do through a people who are distinctly his representatives on this earth and who lifted each other up in prayer and united their efforts together to win the world for Christ. I don't know exactly what that looks like. But I do like to think that it would result in the soon coming of Jesus. And that's why we're here, is to see Jesus come by God's grace in this generation. Let me ask you a question. Has tonight's presentation at least made sense? Was it clear? Praise the Lord. So, let me follow up with this. 
And I'm not going to ask you to come down front. I'm not going to ask you for that kind of thing. We're not going to play a song softly. But I want you to spend, as we close in prayer tonight, just a moment, thinking about some of the things we've studied just today. Going back to the first message, is there something in your life that you could be doing more for Christ instead of just doing the bare minimum you want to sacrifice? Lord, here's, here am I. Send me. Do something more with me. Is there some way that you know you should be clearer in your convictions to the, in front of the world without being obnoxious and crazy, but you need to be a more consistent Christian in your presentation of the character of Christ? You want to say, Lord, I need help with that. Fix that in me. Or is there some even resentment towards church leaders that you need to surrender? Say, like, Lord, I'm not a missionary, but I know there's some out there and I don't pray for them nearly enough. There's some frontline soldiers out there. Help me to love my brethren and learn to work together with them so that Jesus can come in this generation. If there's something along those lines stirring in you tonight, would you raise your hand as well? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you. Lord, for sending your son Jesus Christ to do the ministry that only he could do. But now as his representatives, you sent us to be your ambassadors. Lord, forgive us where we have fallen short of your ideals for our lives. Teach us how to be consistent Christians. Teach us how to be in the world, but not of the world. Teach us how to have a spirit of self-sacrifice that goes beyond the mere minimum, but says, Lord, what more can I do for your cause? And Lord, give us a spirit of unity where we pray for each other. We stand shoulder to shoulder with one another. We want the, only the best for your glory. So, Lord, send that same Holy Spirit from the book of Acts to this room tonight and impress upon our hearts those things that might need changing or strengthening and build us every day more and more like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.